Look alive, sunshine. It's time for your favorite indie podcast that nobody knows about, My Seminary Life, and I'm your host, Brandon Knight. And today we're starting a brand new series called Communication in Ministry. It's going to be all about preaching and other areas of communicating the truth of God's word, how to prepare for it, and such. And to kick things off, in today's episode, I'm actually got an entire sermon here for you all. You get to listen to it. This is from this past Sunday. It's on Job chapter 25. So sit back and enjoy, and I'll catch you all at the end of the episode. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come to your house this morning to proclaim the many blessings that you have given to us, to worship you through the singing of songs, through prayers, through studying of your word. I pray now as we move into a time of studying your word, Holy Spirit, please clear away our thoughts. Please help us to move away the distractions that burden us from this past week or the week coming up that we may be able to focus on you. And I pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. We have a lot to cover this morning, so I'm just going to go ahead and jump right into the passage and read it for you this morning. Dominion and fear are with God. He makes peace in his high heaven. Is there any number to his armies? Upon upon whom does he... His light not arise. How then can man be in the right before God? How can he who is born of woman be pure? Behold, even the moon is not bright, and the stars are not pure in his eyes. How much less man who is a maggot and the son of man who is a worm. Heavy, heavy words brought to us this morning from God's word. And this passage gives two big truths that often run throughout the scriptures. That God is so much greater than his creation. That God is greater, higher, so much more significant juxtaposed to mankind. The first half of this passage focuses on God and his greatness and his purity and his power. It's very reminiscent of Psalm 147, verses 10 and 11, where the psalmist writes about how God is over his creation, that he does not need to rely upon the military strength, but on the strength of his righteousness. Just suppose that, of course, then, is man in his depravity, or probably more accurately for this passage, man in his smallness. Man is not pure in the eyes of God. We have sin in our lives. Man is 
impure. And the author of this passage gets creative, gets a little poetic, and even starts to talk about how even the moon and the stars are not pure in God's eyes, in its brightness. How much less than is humans? This very negative depiction of man is reminiscent of two other passages. First, we look at Romans chapter 3, where Paul writes about how none are righteous, no, not one. No one seeks after God. Humans are not inclined to go after God. We are bent to go towards sin. And this very almost grotesque depiction of man as a maggot or as a worm here at the end of the chapter is very similar to really the entirety of the book of Ecclesiastes, which deals with this idea that humans are living a life that is hard, is difficult, is not good. Life can be very pessimistic and not a life optimism. Now we could close the book and call it a day there on a sermon that we've all heard a thousand times, but I left out a very key part of this passage. And if you would like, I invite you now to join me in Job chapter 25. If you have God's word, I was reading from Job chapter 25, and you might be wondering why I didn't tell you that before, but don't worry, this is going to make sense in a minute. The part that I left out isn't just the fact that I didn't tell you to turn to Job chapter 25, it's also the first verse. I I started in verse 2. Job chapter 25 verse 1 says, Then Bildad, the Shehuite, you don't know how to say it either, the Shehuite, Answered and said, and then it goes on with what I read there this morning about the greatness of God juxtaposed to the smallness of man. It's a short chapter. Feel free to read it for yourself later this Sunday. You won't be missing much. The Cubs aren't having a good year this year, sadly. Most Christians have a general idea of the book of Job. We've heard this story or a summary of this story many times. Job is a righteous, wealthy father. He has a lot of kids, he has a lot of wealth, and he follows God. He's very passionate about following the Lord. And one day, Satan comes to God in his throne room, which sounds like the setup of a joke, but that's how the story goes. God is in his throne room, and Satan comes before him. And God says, have you ever considered my servant Job? And Satan does what Satan always does. He accuses. That's his main thing. He accuses. And he says, Job doesn't really faithfully serve you for nothing. You have blessed him so much. If you let me take away all of his blessings, Job's not going to follow you anymore. And God says, okay. And that's what Satan does. He goes and he takes away all of Job's possessions, everything at that time that would have communicated wealth, his flocks, everything. He kills his children. He has them killed in a natural disaster. Job loses everything but his life and his wife. But Job remains faithful to the Lord. Satan goes back before God 
And God says, have you ever considered my servant Job? And Satan says, look, let me do something to him physically this time. God says, okay. So he goes and he produces these boils on Job. It's just his uncomfortable sores all over his body. And it says that he would take a broken piece of pottery and like scratch himself to try to get the boils off. And Job starts to question things now. This setup is just the first few chapters of the book of Job. The major context, the bulk of this book is a conversation, a poetic conversation between Job and three of his friends. As they sit down to wrestle with what they know about God, how they understand life to work, and desperately trying to figure out what in the world is even going on here. Why would something like this happen to Job? It's the age-old question of why do bad things happen to good people? That's the conversation that they have. Now, if you've ever heard a sermon on the book of Job before, you know that there's two things that we always like to proclaim. First one is, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. This is what Job declares after the first time of losing everything. He knows that God is the giver of all good things. He knows that God is in control. So he declares his faith in God still. And it's an encouragement to us. It's a challenge to us that when we go through life, when we lose things, when it seems like we have fallen out of blessing from God, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. My father-in-law recently passed away, and I heard this verse repeated time and time again during the funeral service. It's a comfort to us when we lose a loved one. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The other big thing that is taught from the book of Job is this. Don't be like Job's friends. Don't be like his friends. Job's friends, these three guys, Bildad is one of them, they show up. And for the first couple days, they sit there in silence and mourn with Job. Not bad. Pretty good friends there. Then the conversations start. It's interesting reading the arguments between Job and his friends. Job just wants to be heard. Job just wants to go before God and say, hey man, what's up here? What happened? I thought everything was okay. What's, what, why, why is this happening? Bildad and, his, and the other two friends, I don't think they're trying to be malicious. I don't think they're trying to hurt Job. We often villainize them as these people who are really trying to bring Job down. They just understand everything differently. Their faith, their theology is what is called in theological studies as retribution theology. It's like karma. Karma is this idea that if you put good out into the world, good will come back to you, and if you put bad out into the world, bad will come back to you. Retribution theology works similarly, that if you are being blessed by God, that means you must be following God. But if you are not receiving blessings, like Job is here, 
that means you must obviously have sin in your life and you need to repent of your sin. It's actually very similar to prosperity gospel where they teach that if you want health, wealth, success, prosperity, the whole thing, just exercise enough faith. And if you're not getting those things, you're not exercising enough faith. So give us more money. Job's friends, they come to Job and they're saying, Job, it's obvious. You have sin in your life. You need to repent. And Job is adamant, I have done nothing wrong. I haven't done anything wrong. Stop saying I've done something wrong. If you've ever seen an argument happen on social media, in the comments, where people are just like yelling at each other back and forth in the comment section, this is pretty much reading the book of Job. Job says this, they respond with this, has nothing to do with what Job says. Job responds with something else. It's just arguing back and forth. What's interesting, though, is that when you strip it out of context, there's nothing wrong. Sometimes, Job's friends are right. Sometimes, Job's friends, their theology is correct. This passage I read here this morning, that was, that sounded right. God is so much greater than man. Man is so much lower than God. That was correct. And this gets to the actual sermon. All that stuff at the beginning about me talking about Job 25, that was a bonus. Mr. Quarter's not here, so that was a bonus. You're welcome. Normally, Mr. Quarter comes up and he gives us all a little devotional. That, that was a bonus. The point of today's sermon is this. I want to answer this question. Is there ever a time where we should not speak the truth? Is there ever a time when we shouldn't speak the truth? Job's friend, Bildad, in this situation was absolutely correct. It did not matter to Job. If you go right over to the very next chapter, chapter 26, Job immediately dismisses everything that he says. You don't get it. To summarize it and to put it into modern-day English, Job basically says, look, bro, you don't get it. You don't understand what I'm going through. I don't care what you have to say. But Bildad spoke the truth. It's important for us to understand when is it right to speak truth to someone. Now, I'm not talking about preaching or your Sunday school teacher or your small group leader. I'm talking about everyday life as the body of Christ, how we engage with one another, and how we speak truthfully to one another. Is there ever a time where we shouldn't speak the truth of God's word to each other? We have been taught, maybe some would use the word conditioned, to believe that to ever withhold the truth is a lie. 
that to not give someone the whole truth is still a lie. I think of Ecclesiastes chapter 3 where the preacher talks about how there's a time and a place for everything. There's a time to kill, a time to heal. There's a time to gather stones. There's a time to spread stones out. There's a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. Is there a time to speak truth and a time not to speak? I once was volunteering with a youth group and there was a how do I put this? There was a lesson coming up that wasn't controversial, but it had sensitive, it was a sensitive topic. It was related to mental, mental health, and it was going to be on a very sensitive topic. And one of the other volunteers was very concerned with what was going to be taught, what was going to be communicated, what were you going to say, what was the youth pastor going to say to the students? And I was I wasn't dropping eaves, but I was definitely close enough to hear what was going on. And I heard them going back and forth about, you know, she, the, the volunteer was very concerned. What, what is going to be talked about? Are you going to talk about this? Are you going to talk about that? And the youth pastor said, not all truth needs to be shared. How does that sit with you? Not all truth needs to be shared. Because for some Christians, that probably rubs you the wrong way. There are some Christians out there who are unashamed, going to take the word of God, take the truth, and bash it over people's heads. They're like a professional wrestler with a steel chair. They're just going to go around and mow down everybody in their way. Oh, what's going on in your life? Boom, here's a verse. What's going on in your life? Boom, here's a verse. That's some people's approach to their faith. They are adamant. I speak the truth in all things. They exhort. They're zealous. And I am here to tell you today that that is a false form of zealousness. I am here to tell you today that it is so much more complicated than just hitting people over the head with Scripture. Let's look at the life of Jesus for a moment. We're Christians. That's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to look to Jesus. How did Jesus deal with this? How did Jesus deal with communicating truth? Well, in Matthew 23, he's talking to the Pharisees and the scribes. And he gives a scathing indictment of them. He goes, this is the section where over and over and over again, Jesus is saying, woe unto you, woe unto you, you hypocrites, you whitewashed tombs, you brood of vipers, over and over and over again. But how does Jesus talk to Nicodemus in John 3? Nicodemus, also a Pharisee. Now, Jesus does get to the point pretty directly, but... He never condemns him. He doesn't call him a hypocrite. He doesn't call him a whitewashed tomb. He just talks to him. Or you look at Jesus when he interacts with the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8. This woman is brought before Jesus by a mob. And they say, we've caught this woman in adultery. The law says that we should stone her. 
And this is a fascinating story because it says John makes it very important to make sure we all know that Jesus writes something in the sand. He doesn't tell us what Jesus writes, but he writes something in the sand. Thanks, John, for leaving out that part. And he says to the crowd, you who without fault throw the first stone. And they all leave until it's just Jesus and this woman. And, the, and then Jesus doesn't pick up a stone and stone her. He asks where her accusers are. She says they've left. And he tells her, I don't accuse you either. Go and sin no more. What this tells us is that Jesus didn't just operate in one gear. Jesus approached people differently all the time. It's not a one-size-fits-all. Sometimes there was a time to call people out, to say, your beliefs are hurting people. And then there was a time to sit down and just talk to someone to help them understand what is really the kingdom of God all about. And even dealing with people who were caught in the act of sin, Jesus approaches them differently. Not calling them a brood of vipers, not calling this woman all types of horrible names. He forgives her and sends her on her way, telling her not to sin anymore. Jesus didn't have this one-size-fits-all, I'm just going to bash everybody over the head with truth. Jesus proclaimed the truth, but he did it differently with each person, depending on his relationship with that person and what was the context going on. Paul writes in Galatians 6.1, he's writing to the church in Galatia, he says, brothers, if someone is caught in sin, if someone is caught up in a sin, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. So what he's saying there is that when a brother or sister in Christ falls into sin as the body of Christ, we have a responsibility to that brother and sister in Christ to bring them back. But he says there at the end of the verse to bring them back in a spirit of gentleness. Paul doesn't call for us to get angry with this person, to say, why would you do that? To say, why would you doubt your faith? Why would you go this direction? He says that we have a responsibility to bring them back in a spirit of gentleness. To be gentle with people who have fallen into sin. Paul also writes in Ephesians 4 verses 14 and 15 that the body of Christ is built by truth. We grow and are strengthened as the church, as the kingdom of God, by proclaiming truth to one another. We are to speak the truth, and Paul finishes the sentence by saying, in love. Speak the truth in love. Some people have this idea that speaking truth is a loving act. No, it's not. You can speak the truth and that's it. That's why Paul had to tag on, speak the truth in love. So what we see from Jesus is that we need to approach speaking truth 
in a not one size fits all way. We just aren't going to go around bashing people with Bible verses. We need to understand who we are talking to first. And Paul adds in that as the church, we have the responsibility to do that gently and lovingly. I think back to all of the discourse. Now, this is a problem that's been going on for a much longer time, but this is recent history. All of the discourse that was going on online and in real life during 2020 with everything going on of Christians just getting at one another's throats. Where was the gentleness and the love in the church then? I know it was a hotbed of issues going on and we were all processing grief, but where was the love? Where was the gentleness? And it's still going on like that to this day. As I said, there are people out there that when it comes to this idea, we're supposed to be zealous warriors of truth. That what the Bible says, that's it. The Bible says, do not be anxious for anything. So you, person who's struggling with anxiety, stop worrying. Just stop. Just stop doing it. Just stop worrying. The Bible says so. Not even caring the fact that this person has a medical condition that in the moment they cannot control how they respond. The preacher on the radio said that, you know, you're supposed to, if you love God, you have to love your, you have to love the church as well. So all these people who are leaving the church, starting house churches and deconstructing their faith, they need to get back in line. They need to get back in church. That's here in the building. That's how you tell God you love him. Not even caring that for many people, not all, but many people who are leaving the church right now are not leaving the church to be ornery, to be, you know, all fighting and starting trouble. People are leaving the church, are deconstructing their faith, starting these little house churches because at some point in time, they experienced abuse and trauma from leaders in the church. The Bible says that homosexuality is a sin, so I'm going to take every opportunity I can to snub my nose at the, quote, alphabet soup of, you know, gender options. Not even caring about the fact that even if you identify in the LGBTQ plus community, that that person is still a human being with life in their lungs, a soul who matters to God. We declare, for God so loved the world, or I'm pro-life, and yet we are constantly coming up with exceptions. God loves everybody as long as it fits into the way I want him to. Until then, I will continue to bash people with my Bible. We need, as a church, we need to get back to speaking the truth in love, gently. We need to get back to being like Jesus and interacting with people depending on the context. That's it. That's the whole sermon. Speak the truth in love, 
gently and know the context that you're, of the person you're talking to. The shouting, the screaming. That's the world. That's how the world handles things. I hate to be the guy who has a kid who's not even two months old and he's already using illustrations, but it fits, so I'm going to use an illustration. Some of you have been asking me about Cooper. How's he doing? He sleeps great at night. Thanks for asking. He hates his car seat. Oh, my word. From the moment we put him in his car seat to the moment we take him out, it is, he goes ballistic. He's a little monster. He hates it. And one of these times, I think it, we were driving to church one Sunday morning, and he's going off in the back seat. I looked at my wife, Claire, and I said, it's fascinating that from the beginning, from the beginning of life, we know one thing, that if I want something or that if I don't like something, scream really loud. That's the only way babies know how to communicate is by crying. And if they really don't like the car seat, they just keep getting louder and louder. The only other thing Cooper knows how to do to communicate is he does this really adorable thing where he'll push his tongue up against his bottom lip. That means he wants his bottle or his pacifier. That's the only other thing he knows how to do to communicate. Nine times out of ten, he is going to scream. He is going to cry to get our attention. And what's fascinating is that for so many people, that never goes away. We grow up and we continue to scream and to yell when we don't like something, when we want something to be different. As the church, as the body of Christ, as his kingdom in this world, we are told to do things differently. We are told to be gentle, to be loving, and to care and to know about the person we're talking to. So, I usually do my application part differently. I usually ask a series of open-ended questions to give you an opportunity to think about how you can take that next step. I've actually gotten next steps for you to take. This is how you engage with somebody who is struggling with crippling anxiety. What do you do when someone comes up to you and says, I'm wrestling with doubts about God. I'm wrestling with these things that I was taught as a kid. I don't know if I believe them anymore. Before you go to Bible bashing, here's what you can do. Now, this isn't a multi-step program. This is not a TED Talk. I'm not going to tell you every step to how to pour your cereal because there's so much nuance. There's so many possibilities for why this situation you're in is happening. But here's a general guideline. Number one, read the room. Read the room. What need does this person have right now? Is it really the wisest thing for you to open your mouth and to speak at this point? What does this person need? Does this person need just to have you pray over them? 
does this person need you just to be quiet and let them cry on your shoulder? Does this person need a nap and a snack? Because let's also face it, that works great for babies, and that also doesn't go away as we get older. Naps and snacks are great. What does this person need in this moment? Read the room. Number two, decide if what you want to say is truth or opinion. Because those are two different things, and I think we don't always operate that way. Truth is one thing. Truth is truth. You don't get to decide what's true for you. You don't get your own personal my truth. Please stop saying that. Truth is truth. And there may come a time, maybe not immediately, but there will come a time where you need to speak the word of God to someone gently and lovingly. Opinion is different. Opinions can be debated. My granddaddy thinks that Little Caesars is the best pizza ever. Most of that is based off of the price. But it's still his opinion that that is the best pizza. That's fine. I prefer a double Neapolitan from Barton's. It's great if you've never had it. That's just my opinion, though. It's, open, it's, it's based off of preference, taste, how much it costs, the whole thing. What you, need, what you think you need to say to this person, is it truth or are you just giving your opinion? Because truth takes precedence over opinion. I get this a lot as a traveling preacher and podcaster. I am constantly given feedback. And there are some people who give me feedback and they are very adamant about this is how you should have done it. This is what you should have said. And when you strip it away, it's really just your opinion. And it's up to me to decide if I want to listen to your opinion or not. Opinions are nice. You can have your opinions, but truth comes first. So read the room. What does this person need right now? Is what you want to say truth or opinion? Third, as you can probably guess, speak the truth in love and gently. Men, we can do this. The Bible is constantly calling us as men and women to use our full range of emotions to the glory of God. We can do this. I'm a stay-at-home dad now. I'm working on the gentleness. Gentle and loving. We're not supposed to come running out with our Bible and hitting people. Get them to God's word eventually. It's okay if it's not step one. And finally, number four, be willing to get stern. Be willing to get stern. There will come a time where you may have to start laying it out more with somebody. I would say those opportunities come more when you're dealing with someone who is unrepentant, keyword, of their sin. When you're in dealing with someone who just is very caught up in a certain lifestyle, does not want to repent of it, then get strong. Then get tough. But until then, gentle and loving. That is what we have been called as a church. 
That's what we've been called as a body of Christ. That is how we represent Jesus in this world as actual light in the darkness, is to definitely speak the truth, but to care about the person that we are speaking that truth to, and to do it lovingly and gently. Let's pray. Well, hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to today's episode. I hope you enjoyed that sermon. If you did, please share that with somebody that you think might get something out of it. This is an important topic that we covered today, the importance of how to communicate truth to other people. It's a serious issue that's going on in the church today, and I hope you can feel the passion in my preaching, but also, more importantly, I'm hoping that the hoping and praying that the Holy Spirit is moving inside of you with this as well. But again, thanks for listening to today's episode. Please head on over into the description of this episode to find links to our website, to the show's merch store, links to the social media, Facebook and Instagram at my seminary life POD. Are they still a band? And always, you can reach out to the show, email seminarylife at gmail.com. Again, all the links for that are in the description of today's episode. Rate and review, all that good stuff. Just behind this episode on the feed is the final episode for the College Stories series where I told one of my beloved stories, the story of the Smashing Pumpkins. Well, my story about Smashing Pumpkins, more accurately. Also, this past week, I was a guest on the show, This Seat's Taken, talking about movies, a little bit different, similar, but different to Systematic Ecology. So go support his show by checking that out as well. We'll see you next week for a full-blown episode on communication in ministry. But until then, keep on studying.